Good day and thanks so much for joining us on a frank conversation. Today we are talking about something that's called the 4% problem or 4% phenomena. What does that mean? Oh, we're going to dive into this. And here to help me, Erica Buckley. Erica is Associate Director of Leadership and Diversity Education, Office of Student Leadership and Engagement at the University of Tampa. Good day, Erica. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm well. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and a bit nervous to jump into this particular topic because as we were discussing, this can splinter so many different directions. We really have to specify uh, which direction we're going to take this conversation. So today, as I mentioned, we're talking about the 4% problem. Have you heard of this? Yes, yes, actually I have um, in a lot of different fields. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a common conversation we it's have in thing. sociology. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. And so so if you break it down for the folks out there, our friends at home or wherever they may be listening to us right now, what, what is it? Well, you see it appear in a lot of different situations. So um, a good example is is neighborhoods, right? We call it the tipping point. There are certain neighborhoods in which um, once too many underrepresented people move in, Around 4%, the tipping point is that, okay, now all of a sudden you'll start to see white flight out of that neighborhood. That means white families or white homeowners will start to leave, depart. Um, you see in the corporate level, you know, there's only so many underrepresented people at the top. And in particular with African-Americans, it hovers around that 4% mark, right? So there's this feeling that in order for, certain people to make it to the top, they have to be exceptional, right? They have to be, you know, I, I have a friend that calls them magical Negroes. You know, they have to be the best of the best, better than anyone else to crack that 4% piece and, and get into that 4%. Have you found yourself being harder on yourself because you don't walk on water when you, whenever you've made a mistake in a world <laughs> that uh, you're surrounded by people who for the most part don't look like you? I, you know, I, I, it ebbs and flows, right? Some of us do have, and I've had my moments where I have imposter syndrome. Do I deserve this position? You know, have I worked hard enough? Um, as a black person in America, especially a black female in America, my parents always drummed into me. You have to be twice as good or three times as good as anybody else to get the same things. And I hate that mantra. It's frustrating, you know, because I should be able to be a normal person and do a, a decent job and get the same opportunities as maybe my white counterparts or other counterparts of color, so. I think I've told friends several times over, part of my challenge, especially early in my career, was not internalizing the negative assessments of me. Yeah. Because they weren't true. They were describing yeah. someone else. Mm -hmm. um, but not internalizing it. Who they were describing, I don't know. Perhaps an idea of me. Um, I want to jump into systemic racism. What does that mean? People say, what, what exactly is that? Well, can, can you... I'm glad you asked. What is that? <laughs> yeah, no, I always tell people systemic racism is all around us, right? It's policies, it's practices, it's socialization, right? How we were raised. 
is systemic racism, right? The structure exists. It was created, right? All of the terms that we know for things or how we engage with our understanding of racism is a structure that was created. And I will tell you it's created because it does not exist the same way in other countries. So if you look at South Africa, how their race categorizations are structured looks different. Japanese are considered white. Chinese are considered black. It doesn't make sense, but it's what they've done. And so we've also created a system and a structure in which we are socialized into. And when you get into the policies and the, the legalization of these beliefs, right, of superiority or inferiority or, you know, what's beautiful and what's not, you know, when it gets into the law, when it gets into opportunities, um, and, and, and who can have and who cannot, that, that structure and that systematic element of it becomes your lived reality. And it is, that's what it is for all of us, right? Um, we like to act like, oh, well, there's just this individualized racism. And then there's the, no, we are part of the structure. So we are also part of the system that continues to perpetuate racism. And so when we think about it in those terms, and you say the way you're describing it, that is the only way to view it, right? When we're talking about systemic racism, <sighs> folks have really been conditioned to see themselves the way the world around them has told them they should view themselves, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's hard. So um, one really good way of looking at it is hair discrimination, okay? Historically, companies and organizations, businesses, even, you know, relationships that you have with people, there's a look, right? Oh, it has to be silky. It has to be straight. It has to, you know, even for white women, you know, there has been hair discrimination with curls, this concept of curly hair for a very long time, right? And so, you know, the Supreme Court even reinforced hey, it's okay, it's legal for you to fire somebody because they have locks, right? That is that legalization piece that I'm talking about. When we've taken our perceptions of what is good and bad that grows out of somebody's hair, right? Or out of their head, right? And said that this is, is legally permissible for somebody to fire you, not based off of how you do the job, not based off of whether or not, you know, the clients like you or anything like that, but because I don't like the way your hair looks. I was told, even the term we use for locks, dreaded locks, right? That comes from British colonialism in Jamaica, right? The dread, the word dread, it, it has significance, right? There's a feeling associated with it and it's not good, right? So for that to flow over into policies that companies have, right? Even the military, the military just recently released, I believe it was within this last year, you know, the new regulations right. for hair that was allowed, right? right? It should not wait until 2021 for us to say, hey, you can still wear that mask with your hair like that. As long as it's neat and kept and clean, that should not be a problem. But the determination that people's hair is automatically dirty, nasty, bad, because it doesn't look bone straight is, is, is in and of itself, once again, that systemic racism that we're seeing. Um, and when you get into policies where, once again, redlining, redlining right? Yes. Redlining with housing, you could lose your license as, you know, a realtor 
if you did not prevent black people from moving into certain there again, it's part of the system. Exactly. Part of the system. Now, that is illegal now, but let's not pretend as if you don't still have realtors that participate in those practices, that you don't still see the segregation going back to that tipping point conversation we were having earlier, right? Sure. When it comes to that, so then you see generational wealth, generational segregation that is happening based off of these practices that were law at first, and now they're social, but they still are having an impact on people. Now I purchased a home recently and thank God my realtor, she was from De La Rosa Realty. She didn't do that to me. She was amazing. But, but I were have concerned friends. that that was something that could have happened. And, oh, and, and the sure. worst of all this, when you talk about legalizing certain things, we all know that at one point enslaving individuals was legal. And so mm -hmm. when we when we talk about this, this 4% problem and you uh, speak of, you know, African-Americans who may have made it into a certain role and whatever world they, they, they find themselves in, have they really made it? Especially if they can't really be, or can they be change agents if they're that marginalized in, in, in population and being in that environment? I mean, yes and no. I, I think... That's I think, a lot of stress. Yeah, it's a, it is a lot of stress and it is a lot of expectation that unfortunately people are putting upon the underrepresented person. That's not technically their job to educate you. Now, folks like me that I chose this major of sociology and I chose to come into this field, I have chosen to do this, but I have colleagues who work for energy companies. They're engineers. <laughs> they like those circles. I want to know what are y'all saying to each other? Has exactly. there ever been a conversation where they're like, look, Erica, these people that I'm dealing with, for whatever reason, these individuals are not trying to see what I'm saying. And none and, of them look like me. Well, and they're not. That's what I'm saying. These people are are in these circles. You know, if if there is an opportunity, maybe the company will say, hey, so and so. You're Asian. We have this, this committee that's a diversity committee. You should be on it, right? right? And a lot of times then you see people who that's not, once again, their field of study. That's not something that they do on a regular basis just based off their skin tone. So becomes a burden. You have to do it. And exactly, this is your extra work on top of your job that you now have to do. And you don't get compensated for that. No. <laughs> And I, and I, here's the thing, I want to be careful because I don't want to knock employee resource groups. Right. They can, they can be a support network, right? Once again, connecting you in with people that you may not have known were in the company in the first place, right? But is there somebody from the C-suite in that room listening to your concerns and your needs? Has, has somebody who has the ability to create change sat down with this group that identifies differently potentially from them, right? Now it's great if the person from the C-suite looks like you, but as we said, there's a 4% chance that that is the case. But there's gotta be a fear that I know, I've heard people vocalize, are notes being taken and are these seen as more maybe complaints than solutions? And this is uh, giving folks a reason to check a box to, to usher me out the door. Well, and therein lies the dedication by the company, right? Does the company really care about diversity or do they just want to release a tweet and say, Black Lives Matter, we care, 
when you look at the results of the long-term interactions that this company has with their workers, with you know, whatever products they're release, releasing, their commercials, all of these things, are they taking the time to really think about creating change, right? Millennials and Gen Z have been very, very clear that those things matter to us. Mm-hmm. You know, so much so, unfortunately, that we've gotten deep into this cancel culture where, where there's less grace happening and there isn't the ability for us to always have certain teachable moments, right? I think we still need to pull back sometimes on that because everybody that makes a mistake isn't automatically worthy of cancellation. Sometimes if, if there is, there is the ability and the openness to learn, we need to create those spaces for that. But so if you don't company, believe people are irredeemable. You, you think some people, some people I, can rectify think, their stance. I think you have to go into each situation and figure it out. It's not a one and done situation. Something wrong happened here. Does does everything else that this person, you know, like commit to or or show to the world show that they they don't care and that this is their regular behavior? Or is it something where it was like there is there's ignorance and there's an opportunity to learn? Willful ignorance. There are some people that they don't care, right? <laughs> Neo-Nazis don't care. Certain white supremacists will tell you, no, no, I have power and control and I want to keep it. But a lot, on average, human beings are like, I've never interacted. Once again, this 4%, you live over here, I live over there. We're segregated out from each other. We're not having interactions and experiences. I don't even know that I don't know because I don't interact with you. And and getting back to this 4%, phenomena that we're talking about, because we have some numbers that were released by uh, CBS this morning, just days ago, and they put a graphic up on the screen. It showed some of these corporations, Apple, when it comes to uh, black leadership representation, 4%. Amazon, 3.8%. Facebook, 3.4%. Google, 2.6%. We were talking about these numbers. It did not surprise you. No. No. Is that more saddening that it did not surprise you? It, it is. It is. It's saddening. But unfortunately, once again, if you are not really committed to change, you know, when you have opportunities to create real change and prime example, there's some companies out there that have hired people on the tech side of things. And then all of a sudden those people end up let go. Oh, it just didn't work out. Right. Um, Are you really dedicated to the change that you say you want to see? Are you really, once again, listening or did you come with a notepad to find out how you can get rid of these people, right? These people aren't these people. These people are your people. They're your employees. And if you want them to be happy, right, you want them to be successful and you want your company to be successful because the dollars don't lie. Diversity pays right? It doesn't matter if it's Black Panther when Marvel said, hey, we're going to have a full Black cast and wow, we made all this money. Or, you know, crazy rich Asians. Going back to the hair thing, Black hair sells. It makes money. It's billions of dollars. And for the longest time, companies just did not bother. Had they taken five minutes to look at the numbers and even listen to their clients, listen to their employees, they would know that that is an opportunity to make money. There are a few companies out there that have done that, 
like do you Target think that companies thing. are not uh, you mentioned to, but uh, you mentioned that companies need to take a look at the bottom line do you think yeah. that they are unaware or some of these corporations i'm not naming any specifically but do you think that maybe they're just indifferent to it i think even some if it are. means losing out on finances I think some are, but I, I would say more often than not, they are not, they're not updating themselves. They're not, because if somebody told me there's a billion dollars sitting here and I, I could have access to it as a company, as a corporation, and I said, nah, I'm cool, just <laughs> doing what I've always done. No, they're not. Certain things don't make it up the ladder, unfortunately. That's that communication piece. If people take five minutes to really look at it, like I said, the numbers don't lie. Look, once again, going back to companies like Target, Target has actually been selling Black women's hair products since the early 2000s. They've expanded upon that. And now you're seeing all these movements and, and, and advertisements, but they've, they've already, they started out small, they committed small and they grew it as time goes on. Now everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon. Oh yeah, we're inclusive. You can see through the company, if the company starts thinking about it and they see the long-term impact financially for them, socially, they're gonna make those changes and they're gonna listen to their employees and they're gonna listen to society, the stakeholders that are gonna shop at that company. Final thought here, Erica. In your experience, prior to even jumping uh, into this professional world, and you coupled that with what you saw before you got into that world and now you're here, what advice would you have for the employees working for these corporations? Because we just heard what you said about the corporations and what they should do. What is your advice for Black people specifically protecting their own psyche? Because this must be exhausting. And I know there's got to be times where you you feel like, I, I, I just, I need a hug <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic. Listen, there is a, a video out there and sometimes I sell it to send it to friends and it's it's calling in black. It's on YouTube. I, I, I it's ugh, Evelyn from the Internet. She's amazing. I've seen this. Yes. I, I tell people sometimes you have to take a mental health day. Sometimes you you a, a mental health sick day is just as important as a physical sick day. You also need to make sure you have a support network. I tell everybody that. If you go to a job, you're looking at a job, you do not see the potentiality for any sort of emotional support. You know, there's no community there for you. Ask yourself, how long are you going to last there? And, and, and then while you're in that job, if you're at a job and they have made it clear that they do not care about you or people that look like you, you need to find another place to be. And I know economically that is not easy. You gotta bide your time while you can, but you gotta do what you gotta do. And, and on top of that, for me, religiously, my faith keeps me grounded because there's sometimes the jobs that made me feel crazy. And I was like, Jesus, if you don't keep me, I'm not gonna make it. <laughs> <laughs> you say you don't always feel blessed and highly favored in those instances. Uh, not in them jobs, no, no, you no. You feel cursed and lowly favored. <laughs> <laughs> no, I honestly, I was blessed and highly favored in the fact that I, I was able to survive. I was able to make an impact on the students around me. And I, I saw the pay it forward that I was giving to them. 
you know, and, and then I've had students call me back and say, thank you. Thank you for investing in me. Thank you for taking that time. Thank you for seeing things in me when nobody else would. We have to do that, not just for students, but for colleagues, for peers, giving people opportunities. When everybody else said, nah, let's throw that person out with the trash. They're no good. You take that opportunity to nurture and support somebody. And especially if it's people of color and they're not getting it from anybody else, you be that support network for them. Now, this is where you send the collection plate around, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Let the church say amen. Amen. I cannot thank you enough for your time and your insight, Erica. I really appreciate it. And to all of you out there listening to a frank conversation, until next time, you have a good one.